Something to note, all myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected the stories that are most entertaining and supplemented them with additional research into Egyptian traditions. Our versions may not be the myth you're familiar with, but we hope you enjoy them. And be warned, today's episode contains depictions of graphic violence, gore, and animal cruelty. Please exercise caution for listeners under 13. The desert belongs to no man, but if it belongs to anyone, it would be the scavengers. Wolves and jackals and desert dogs, they would move through the sand dunes at night, feet as light as a whisper. They skirted the lights of the city where man dwelled. It was not wise to get too close, but just close enough and they'd find a delicious morsel, particularly in the graveyards. Of these creatures, one walked alone. He was Anubis, and he was no jackal, but a god who wore a canine appearance. He was the runt of his family, a being born into the world his parents and uncles and aunts had crafted. Their achievements humbled him, so he contented himself with being a dog for the time being. He liked being a dog. He liked how it felt, the heightened sense of smell, the sharpened hearing. And when he saw his fellow canines digging away at human graves, he felt compelled to do something about it. He'd chase the wolves and the jackals away from the tombs. He was no scavenger. He was a defender, and he relished this role. It was not long before he realized this was his purpose, to ensure the dead would not be disturbed. Until one night, when a voice drifted to him upon the air. Anubis. Hello? Is someone there? Anubis, I need your help. Your time has come. Anubis looked up. A dark shape circled in the stars above him, a bird. On instinct, he began to run beneath it, keeping pace as best he could. He ran and ran until all four of his legs ached. Finally, the bird sat down before him. When it rose, it was a bird no longer, but a tall woman with eyes clouded with grief. Anisis, I have not seen you in hundreds of years. How are you? Isis did not respond. She looked down. At her feet was a chest made of dark wood. When Anubis got close enough, a horrible stench prickled his nose. Ugh, what is that smell? Look inside. Anubis stepped forward and stood to his full height. No longer did he look like a dog, but a man with a canine head. He bent down and unlatched the box. He almost gagged as the lid swung open. The box was filled with gore, blood, viscera, scraps of skin, and fragments of bone. What is this? This is all that remains of your uncle, Osiris. My, oh, Ra, what happened? Your father happened. The fur along Anubis's spine prickled. He hadn't wanted to believe it. He had known Osiris and Set had a long-standing feud, but this, he couldn't even tell which piece was which. I had nothing to do with this. I haven't spoken to my father in- I know. It is not vengeance I seek. Your family has been watching you for some time, Anubis, wondering what your purpose is. We've noticed you spend a lot of time in the graveyard, playing with the desert dogs. It wasn't exactly playing. I cannot let Set destroy Osiris. The balance of Ma'at must be restored, and for that I need someone who has lived amongst Carrion. I need you to put your uncle back together. Use whatever means necessary. I'll give it my best shot. Anubis felt guilt weigh heavily in his stomach. He'd chosen to live apart from his family, from the great creators of the world, because he found their feuds distasteful. 
But now here he was, holding an immortal life in his hands. It was going to get messy. Welcome to Mythology, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find all episodes of Mythology and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This October, join us for Mythology Underworlds as we explore four stories of the afterlife through classic myths. Each week, we'll see what the ancient Greeks, Norse, and Egyptians believed happened after you passed on. These underworlds are a relief, but also terrifying in their own right. Today will be an unconventional episode of mythology because there are not many stories about its central figure. Anubis is a popular character in Egyptian art, but his role in their myths is incredibly brief. This is a common feature of underworld gods, who tend to be figures of awe rather than heroes of their own adventures. Ancient people would refrain from characterizing death too much, because those who presume to know death do so at their own peril. So today, we'll explore Anubis through the burial rite he created, mummification. Coming up, we'll unwrap the most iconic burial practice of the ancient world. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Red Baron's new fully loaded hand-tossed style pizza is so full of topping. Hold on there, partner. That there pizza is big enough for the both of us. With a half pound of toppings and a soft, chewy crust, it sure is. Problem is, though, this town ain't. <gasps> Introducing the Red Baron Fully Loaded Hand Toss Style Pizza. Share something awesome. What counts as ancient Egyptian mythology is something of a moving target. Unlike, say, the Olympian pantheon of the Greeks, in Egypt, the roles, relationships, and even identities of the gods shift from dynasty to dynasty. Fortunately, Anubis did not change nearly as much as the others. His parents changed. Sometimes he's called the son of Osiris, sometimes the son of Set, sometimes the child of Ra himself. However, his role in the stories is fixed. Death, even in mythology, is a constant. Historical evidence seems to indicate that Anubis predates Osiris as the god of the Egyptian underworld, also known as the Duat. However, when Osiris rose to prominence in the Middle Kingdom, Anubis did not disappear. Rather, he took on a more specialized role. He was no longer the lord of the underworld, but more of a guardian who protected the tombs of the deceased and led them to the halls of judgment. But most importantly, in the Osiris story, it is he who aided Isis in restoring the dead god to life. Through this process, they created the first mummy. Perhaps more so than any other culture, ancient Egypt became legendary for how it treated the dead, from the Great Pyramids to the mummies contained within. During the Victorian era, the English were so enamored with the embalmed bodies that they'd host unwrapping parties for long-dead corpses, proudly defiling graves that had been undisturbed for millennia. 
But the truth is, mummification was a practice that fascinated non-Egyptians even before that, and someone visiting from, say, Greece would have much to learn about the ways of Anubis. The city of Thebes was in mourning, not for a pharaoh or some high priest, but for a man who had won the respect of nobles and commoners alike. His name was Isidorus, an ambassador for the kingdom. He had traveled far and wide during his lifetime, but it was back at home that he met his end. A dear friend, Shalik, found his body lying prostrate in the street. Everyone wanted someone to blame for this unexpected tragedy, but there was no evidence of a crime. All the city could do was mourn. Atikos had never seen an Egyptian funeral procession before. It appeared to be utter chaos, men and women alike wailing in abject sorrow, plaster and mud smeared upon their foreheads. The women wore garments that exposed their breasts, and the men beat upon their own chests feverishly. One of the bare-breasted women made brief eye contact with Atikos, and he felt his cheeks flush. A moment later, she went back to wailing as if nothing had happened. Atikos noticed a figure standing by the edge of the crowd. He wore a leopard-skin cloak, and he paced up and down restlessly. Pardon me, sir. Move on, peddler. I have nothing for you today. I am no peddler. I am a traveler from abroad, looking for hospitality for the night. Mm, is that so? Where are you from? I hail from the great city of Thebes. This is Thebes. Oh, how silly of me. I mean to say I hail from a great city of Thebes. There's one in Greece too, you know. It can get rather confusing, I must say. How interesting. Move on. Can you not see we are in mourning? I could hardly miss it. I approached you, sir, since you appeared to be the only one in the square not crying. Why is that? Death is a part of my daily trade. But just because my eyes are dry, do not assume I am not moved. The dead man was a good friend of mine. A thousand apologies. I had no idea. Of course you didn't. Just one more thing. I'm a scholar. I'm here to give an account of your illustrious country. Hearing some perspectives from the locals would help me immensely. I am a busy man. Of course, of course. I should probably say, I was sent here by some very influential men. My task is of a certain cultural importance, and anyone who would aid me might expect some reward, hmm? The man frowned, sizing up Atikos. Then, seemingly deciding that it would be easier to get him out of the way, he spoke. Come have supper with me tonight. If you wish to learn about Egypt, I will tell you about Egypt. Wonderful! Simply wonderful! My name is Atikos, and you are? Shalik. Look for the pure place. You'll find me there. Atikos nodded politely and stepped back into the crowd. The pure place, as it turned out, was a euphemism for an embalmer's workshop. Atikos's instincts had been correct. Shalik would be the one responsible for cleaning and preparing the body for burial. Back in Greece, Atikos had heard many strange rumors about the ways in which the Egyptians prepared their dead. Atikos may very well be the first Theban to witness such a procedure, so, dutifully, he waited until the evening and visited Shalik's home. Hello, Shalik. It's your Greek visitor. The door opened, and Atikos nearly fell over in surprise. Standing in the doorway was the same woman he'd made eye contact with in the town square that morning. So sorry, my lady. I appear to have the wrong house. You're Atticos. I... you know who I am? Shalik told me about you. You're to be our guest for supper tonight. When he got over his confusion, Atticos stepped inside. He had not considered that mourners, like embalmers, had lives outside of the rather theatrical funerals they participated in. 
the woman introduced herself as Nebtu, and out of her funeral garb she was an imposing presence, tall and regal like a statue. Shalik, meanwhile, seemed to have shrunk. He no longer wore the leopard skin cloak, and he crouched over the dining table like a man guarding a hoard of treasure. He gestured for Atikos to sit with them. So, let me get this straight. You're a professional mourner, and you're an embalmer. That is correct. Quite the macabre household you've got here. (laughs) We're not a household. Pardon me. Since she answered the door, I assumed you two were married. My wife is always telling me I jump to these ridiculous conclusions, when really I should just ask... My husband died last night. It was his funeral you saw today. I'm so sorry. I presumed you were there in a professional capacity. Any other day, you'd be right. But today, no such luck. So, you, Shalik, you're gonna cut him up and everything? That's your job? Not cut him up. It's a procedure to prepare his body for the next life. Of course, of course. Do you mind if I sit in on this procedure? What? I won't touch anything. I'm a scholar, not a doctor, remember? I'm merely here to learn about your people. That's rather presumptuous of you. Fascinating, though. You'd observe and... Then what? Tell other Greeks what you'd seen. Exactly. Our world is mysterious enough without people making things up about other cultures. I want to publish a fair and accurate description of the Egyptian practices. That way, students in my Thebes will be able to learn about the lives of students in yours. How noble! Bringing the world together. Sounds deeply impractical to me. Your people may be able to worry about such frivolities, but we are at war. And we will always be at war. Persia now, Greece tomorrow, probably. Shalek, show some courtesy. You and Isidorus never understood. Every empire is always a hair's breadth away from obliteration. Our secrets are not meant to be consumed by curious Greeks. If you would rather I not come tomorrow, I understand. Nonsense. Shalik, I want you to show our guests around your workshop tomorrow. Do it for me. Shalik grumbled, but he did not protest any further. Atikos noticed this. He also noticed Nebtu growing more quiet as the meal dragged on. When the two of them left Shalik's home, her shoulders sagged and she walked like a woman at the end of a thousand-mile journey. Do you want me to walk you home? That's very kind of you. Think nothing of it. Actually, I was hoping I could talk to you alone. I'm a widowed woman, Atikos. I'm not interested in trysts with strangers. Is that what you think of me? Well, I suppose I don't blame you. Strange man from a foreign country gets himself invited over for dinner. How did you manage that, by the way? (laughs) Same way I get away with most things. Sheer persistence. When they were far enough away from the so-called pure place, Atiko slowed and turned to face Nebtu. She was a beautiful woman who had somehow not lost her composure, but he saw her hands shaking and knew that there must be a Herculean effort going into her staying that way. His tone changed. He dropped the befuddled character he'd been putting on all afternoon and stood straight. Her eyes widened at this change in countenance. I have to tell you something but I must request it stay between us. I am not here to compile a book on Egypt, as fascinating as such a thing might be. Then why are you here? Your husband was beloved in many countries, Nebtu. I knew him when he was ambassador to Greece. Before his death, he sent me a message. It told me that he feared for his life back home. I came at once, only to find I was too late. You want to know if my husband died under mysterious circumstances, is that it? He was a politician, Atticos. All circumstances are suspicious. Shalik examined the body himself and found no evidence of a crime. He told me that my husband's heart had given out. That's what I was afraid of. I am truly sorry for your loss, ma'am. 
I'll see myself to the inn. We'll meet again before I leave town. With that, the Greek leaned on his walking stick and hobbled away. Nebtu watched him go, then let her gaze drift up to the night sky. Ra was a third of the way through the duat by now. She prayed to him that her husband would find a safe home there. Coming up, we'll watch the creation of a mummy as Atikos inches ever closer to the truth. It's October 20th, 2018, one day until the end of the world. I'm on the compound of a secretive religious organization interviewing a longtime member. Their leader has predicted that tomorrow will be the beginning of the apocalypse. The prediction? Yes, I am prepared. It will purify life from a lot of illusions. When I started working on this story, I was hoping to profile a unique apocalyptic group that had survived through many failed doomsday predictions. But the end of the world was just the beginning. The only way to get to heaven was to allow him sexual activity with me. I didn't specifically give my consent. I was frozen at the time. The angels, they arranged that he is supposed to have sex with his students. He is an amazing teacher, and also he's a sick f- This is Revelations, a Spotify original from Parcast, premiering Sunday, October 3rd. Now back to the story. One of the first sources on the Egyptian embalming process was the Greek historian Herodotus. He visited Egypt sometime around the 5th century BCE during the Greco-Persian Wars. Centuries after his death, he was referred to as the father of history. It was through his eyes that modern scholars discovered the ins and outs of mummification. His research was bolstered in the first century BCE by Diodorus Siculus. Even after four centuries, it was clear that the practice was alive and well, so to speak. It's through the eyes of a similar Greek figure, Atikos, that we will continue this discovery, both of the embalming process and of the god that created it. Atikos arrived at the embalmer's workshop early that morning. Though he was getting older, his mind was as sharp as ever. The death of the Egyptian ambassador Isidorus had seemed suspicious from the get-go. The only way to find out what happened was to follow the path of the body. Atikos looked around the workshop. Large coffins lay up against the walls. Some of these were crude and carved of wood. Others were gilded and shining. A row of small jars lay beside the table, and on the table itself was the body of his old friend. There was something deeply upsetting about seeing Isidorus lying on a slab like this. It was as if the man he'd known had been replaced with a wax dummy. Uncomfortable yet? A little, but I'll be fine. (laughs) You'd better be. It only gets messier from here. Shalik took a small wooden tool from a table and stepped over to the corpse. Without hesitation, he jammed it into one of Isidorus's nostrils. Shalik pushed until the tool was several inches deep into the skull. Turning his wrist, he worked the thing around and around. When he withdrew it, there was a gray goop coating the wood. Hold this, please. Atikos gingerly took the tool and set it back on the table. Shalik lifted the head and held it over a basin. More gray matter dribbled out the nostrils. Is that...? His brains, yes. Some embalmers use a hook, but I find this method is more... efficient. Wow. Such a vibrant mind is now just... gray soup. Spare me the philosophy, Atikos. All that we knew of his adores is in his bar, his individual spirit, if you will. That has long since left his body. Ah, I see. Why preserve his body, then? If he's no longer in it... <sighs> the bar is not the only part of the soul. There is also the car, which will be the body he inhabits in the afterlife. This is what we seek to preserve through mummification. 
Shalik took a funnel and placed it over the nostril. He poured something into it, and the foul smell of death was soon swallowed by a sweeter odor. It wasn't so bad. We've only just begun. The embalmer took up a small flint blade and sliced into the body's side. Though the sudden violence shocked Atikos, he found himself peering closer at the cut the man was making. It was carefully done, but the edges of the cut were ragged and torn. It was as if he was making his incision directly on top of another wound. And on the edges of that wound were small bits of thread. The body had been sewed up before, recently too. Atikos blinked. Had Shalik embalmed this body twice? Is the cut always so crude? Are you questioning my methods, scholar? No, sir. I simply thought I saw... What happens now? Now I remove the liver, entrails, stomach, lungs. And the heart? The heart stays. Isidorus will acquire it when he reaches the Hall of Two Truths. Hmm... Fascinating. Shalik told him the meaning of the jars. They stood for the four sons of Horus, who would protect the innards from corruption. This was a service they only provided for the most wealthy or prosperous of clients. Others would have their body filled with oil of cedar, which would turn their insides to liquid, making the draining process much easier. The two men lifted the body off the table, and Shalik proceeded to pack the body with salt. He covered it and dusted off his hands. There. He shall lie in nature and salt for 70 days, at which point I will cover him in bandages, and he'll be ready for his journey. Any other questions? Just one. Why do you wear a leopard skin? There's a story behind that. Are you sure you want to hear it? <laughs> I've got nowhere to be. I love stories. Very well. It comes from the patron of all embalmers, Anubis. They say he lived on the shores of the Duat, when the land was still young. That he left there in the shape of a dog, to protect the dead from carrion birds and other such carnivores. That life was forever changed by the murder of his uncle, Osiris. I cannot let Set destroy Osiris. The balance of Ma'at must be restored, and for that I need someone who has lived amongst Carrion. I need you to put your uncle back together. Use whatever means necessary. The first mummy, like everyone that followed, was a work of art. Anubis painstakingly reassembled his uncle piece by piece, wrapping the remains in cloth so that they would not come apart. He treated the skin, rinsed the insides with palm wine, and lay the mummy to rest in a casket until it could rise. Both he and Isis were sure that it would. To keep it safe, Anubis set a campfire beside the casket, where he guarded it day and night. He feared this protection would be unnecessary, but deep down he had the feeling it would not be so easy. I knew you would come, father. A creature prowled up to him. It looked like a cat, only it was large, with claws long enough to rend limbs, and dull yellow fur, almost like the sand itself. Anubis could see past the disguise. It was Set, his father, the murderer of Osiris. I suppose you thought your hide would camouflage you, that you could sneak up on Osiris and take him apart all over again. I won't let that happen. Careful, father. Do not come any closer. If you go now, we do not have to fight. Anubis knew this was a fruitless thing to say. Set would never run away from a battle. Anubis reached over to the fire and withdrew a hot iron. Just as he knew Set was always ready for battle, he also knew that only the most extreme violence would keep his father away. Set pounced, and Anubis struck. 
The cat recoiled and leapt again. Again and again it pounced, and each time earned itself a new brand from the iron. Finally, Set retreated into the night, his fur singed and smoking from the fight. The once unblemished yellow pelt was covered in black spots. Anubis sighed and continued his vigil. Shalik finished the story and looked over at the Greek. Atikos had been scribbling on parchment throughout the entire embalming process, but now he just looked at him impassively, like a child absorbing a bedtime story. That's why we wear leopard skins, because we are the custodians of the dead, and no one will disturb our process. Now, is your curiosity sated? Almost. (sighs) I just want to know one more thing. Why did you kill your friend? Shalik's eyes went wide. He looked from Atikos to the body and back again. He opened his mouth to protest, but the Greek spoke first. I know, I know, he was your friend. You'd never do such a thing. Let's skip all the usual protestations. Now, I'm not a soldier or a tribunal, so do not feel as if you are in danger. I am only a seeker of truth. Why do you think I could do such a thing? Well, a few reasons. You were the one who found the body, or so people tell me. Nebtu says that you insisted there was no evidence of foul play. Here, of course, I could see bruising around the throat and that you made your incision right over a wound in the corpse's side. A scar could mean anything. We all have scars. I may be no doctor, but it looked quite fresh to me. You probably thought I wouldn't notice, but I was led to believe that embalming is not something you do on your own. Unless you wanted to make sure no one else would notice signs of a wrongful death. Why, if I wanted to kill somebody, I can think of no better job for concealing the evidence. Get out of my workshop. I'll make this easy for you. Tell me the truth, and you'll never see me again. I'm a stranger here. I wield no power. I just want to hear it from you. Now, Shalik didn't believe for a second that Atikos would be so understanding, but something about the scholar's manner rubbed him the wrong way. He had pretended to be meek and mild, all the while observing Shalik like a hawk. If there was something he could do, anything to crack that man's unflappable exterior, he would. It is because of you. I beg your pardon? Isidorus was like you, a man who makes friends with his enemies. If he remained ambassador for much longer, we would be a thralled state of Athens, of Persia. It is your friendship that killed him. Dear me. I hope you carry that guilt with you for the rest of your life. Mmm, I don't think that's it, Shalik. It's convincing. But men like you often apply elaborate justifications for things that are really far simpler. I think you killed him because you fancied his wife. Shalik's blood boiled with rage. Before he could even think, he had snatched the flint knife off of the embalming table and charged the scholar. Atikos moved quicker than any man his age ought to. He seized a cat sarcophagus and swung it at Shalik's head. Shalik blocked the blow with his spare arm and lashed out with the knife. Atikos caught the blade in his palm and twisted the knife out of his grasp. Shalik grabbed the Greek by his throat and the two of them fell to the floor. Natrin salt spilled from a nearby container and stuck to their sweaty skin. An outstretched hand found a shard of pottery, and Atikos slashed at Shalik's chest, drawing blood. <sighs> Shalik, stop! Please! It's pointless to fight me. She knows! She. But Atikos was too late. No one knew the weight of each table and sarcophagus like Shalik did. Before the scholar had finished making his plea, Shalik brought a heavy lid down on the Greek's head. 
As blood ran out from beneath the sarcophagus, Shalik rolled over to his back. There he lay, staring at the ceiling. <sighs> Say hello to Isidore's for me. Coming up, we see what happens after death. Now back to the story. It had been a perfect plan, Shalik thought to himself as he cleaned up his workshop. Isidorus had been a beloved ambassador, but such men always die from stress or pestilence. And who better to conceal the murder than a trusted friend, an embalmer who could prepare the body to disguise any signs of violence? It would have been perfect if the Greek had not shown up. Not only had he guessed accurately that Shalik was the murderer, but he had pinpointed the man's motivation as well. Shalik's love of Nebtu, Isidorus's wife. As Shalik set about cleaning his workshop, he muttered to himself. It wasn't a prayer, rather it was the negative confession, a rite one recites in the afterlife to prove your soul is pure. Shalik had spent the months leading up to the murder, memorizing every spell and rite he needed to disguise his crime. He would be prepared for judgment in the living world and the dead, even if he lived a long life after this. Hail, Uzek Nemt, who comes forth from Anu. I have not committed sin. Hail, Heptket, who has come forth from Kiraha. I have not committed robbery with violence. Hail, Hafahaf, who cometh forth from thy cavern. I have made none to weep. Shalik's tidying continued until the sun had set and darkness consumed the world outside. Once he had cleaned the blood off the floor, he wrapped the Greek's body, doing his best to disguise the crushed head, and set him off to the side. Who's there? The workshop is closed. It's me, Shalik. Please let me in. Shalik opened the door to reveal Nebtu, the most beautiful woman he'd ever known, lithe as a dancer and noble as a queen. Only now her face was like a mask. She swept past him into the chamber. Where is Atikos? I need to talk to him. He's gone. Gone? Where did he go? Abroad. He joined a caravan bound to Nubia. Once I had told him everything he wanted to know, he felt that it was best to continue his studies elsewhere. How long ago did he leave? Before sundown. He's probably leagues away by now. What's troubling you, my dear? You can tell me anything. He said some strange things when we parted last night. I do not wish to speak out of turn. Suddenly, Nebtu's voice caught in her throat. Her eyes had fallen upon the covered figure of her husband, lying in the natron. Is that... Yes. Can I look at him? You won't like what you see. Nevertheless, I wish to look. Shalik dutifully lifted the covering. He did not like seeing Nebtu cry, but perhaps reminding her that her beloved was quite dead would hasten her mourning process. She was too beautiful to be grieving for long. He looks so small. Bodies often look this way. Have you seen enough? Just one moment. What are those dark markings around his throat? Look here, Nebtu. The details of my process are distressing. I'd rather not have you staring intently at the bodies. Come. Shalik lowered the covering and began guiding Nebtu to the door. However, when she reached the workshop table, she stopped, refusing to be guided any further. You thought no one would notice. What? I saw you at the funeral. I saw you after he had died. And I saw how diligently you tried to keep the Greek from seeing your workshop. I still wasn't sure, until I saw. Her hand reached out, pointing towards the mummy in the corner. The wrappings had settled over the Greek's crushed skull. My dear Shalik, 
Did you think I would not notice you skulking after me like a dog hungry for scraps? Or wonder why Atikos, who said he would see me again, suddenly decided to disappear? And what artisan would have mummified a man without a head? Shalik opened his mouth to defend himself, but he could not. He could not do much of anything besides gurgle. Nebtu, lithe as a dancer, had taken his flint knife from the table and run it across his throat. But as he sank to the floor of his workshop, Shalik did not fight. He did not protest. He smiled through teeth that were stained with blood. It was a horrible blow, not having her after all this time, but he had memorized his spells and his negative confession. He would have life everlasting. Time lost all meaning for Shalik. The heat of the desert, the cool breeze off the Nile, and even the grit of the sand faded from him like the memories of childhood. All that remained was night. The Duat was stranger than Shalik could possibly have imagined. The dunes were of cold, black sand, broken only by the occasional ruin or rocks, which sprung from the ground like teeth in a dead man's mouth. A river cut through this dark landscape. Shalik supposed he could have stood in awe there forever, but there was someone standing beside him, a tall, dark shape with the head of a jackal. It's you, Lord Anubis. Follow me. Shalik was ready for this. He had the spells with him. Nebtu may have convinced his assistants that his death was a workplace accident, but he had enough family that he would have been buried with the proper honors. He checked his garments, silk, just like he hoped. He could feel his heart beating in his chest, and he had the necessary scrolls with him. He grinned. There was nothing to worry about. Slowly, he realized he was not alone. A column of Ka spirits formed an endless procession onward, over the horizon. Shalik joined the untiring march until he reached the Hall of Two Truths. With great effort, Anubis pushed the large stone doors open. The central chamber took Shalik's breath away, if he even still had breath without lungs. The Council of Gods sat around the room, eyes fixed on the new arrivals. Thoth was there, roll of parchment at the ready, and at the head of the chamber was Osiris himself. Anubis gestured, and Shalik stepped forward. His jaw felt tight and strained, but he knew where to begin. As above they were opening his mouth, so below he would recite the corresponding chapter in the Book of the Dead. My mouth is opened by Ptah. My mouth's bonds are loosed by my city god. Thoth has come fully equipped with spells. He looses the bonds of Set from my mouth. Atum has given me my hands. They are placed as guardians. My mouth is given to me. My mouth is opened by Ptah, with that chisel of metal with which he opened the mouth of the gods. Your mouth is opened. Speak now your negative confession. Shalik took a deep breath. His spells were prepared, his confession memorized. He could not fail. Hail Nekanu, who cometh forth from Hakat. I have not shut my ears to the words of truth. Hail Kenimti, who cometh forth from Kenet. I have not blasphemed. Hail Ariamaf, who cometh forth from Tabu. I have never stopped the flow of water of a neighbor. Shalik spoke the words, and he meant every one. He used the version of the negative confession employed by soldiers, so he did not have to say he had not killed another man. This was fitting, as he had served briefly in the Hittite Wars as a youth. His past protected him from the sins of his present. He finished the confession and the spells, and stood before Osiris back straight. 
Suddenly, a sharp pain struck his chest. He looked down to see Anubis's hand withdraw, holding his heart in his palm. It beat steadily, blood running down the jackal god's arm. Shalik the Embalmer, servant of the Duat. Are you free of sin? Yes, I am. And he meant it too. Killing Isidorus had been no sin. It was a sacrifice that he firmly believed would benefit Egypt in the long run. As for lusting after Nebtu, he had never acted on those thoughts, and thoughts are not sins. Anubis stepped back and placed Shalik's heart upon the scale, opposite an ostrich feather. The scale teetered and was still. Even with all his preparation, Shalik was astonished. He had survived the trial. There was still a long journey to go to reach the field of reeds, but he had all the spells he needed to survive that journey. He stepped back out into the vast dark plain and stopped. He was prepared to recite the first spell to allow him to drink from the river safely, but there was a word he didn't know on the paper. What madness is this? Sh- Shiel? Below it was a written message, not part of the spell, but something written there by whoever had interred his physical body. Hello there. I suppose you're starting to feel confused by now. Trying to remember something important. I'll tell you what it is. It's your name. Neptune. What have you done? I could not interfere with your embalming. Your friends at the Pure Place guarded you too closely. So I came back after you had been stowed away. And with a sharp stone, I scratched your name off every surface in your tomb. That way, even if you survive the trial, Amit, Apophis, and this second death, you will be lost in the Duat. Enjoy eternity, nameless one. No, no, I know my name. I know my name. It's, it's Doris. No, it's, it's right there. I can picture the hieroglyphics. I, I just can't say them. But it was no use. Without a name, Shalik was lost, helpless. He could not cast any of the spells he had carried with him, for his name was a key element of those scrolls. He screamed in terror and frustration, his lonely cry vanishing into the starless night. From the palace of Osiris, Anubis watched this despairing soul stumble through the Duat. There was no satisfaction or glee in his gaze, only curiosity. This man's heart may have been light as a feather, but his name had been heavy with sin. The mummy is one of the most iconic symbols of ancient Egypt, but it is also one of the most misunderstood. Horror films and popular culture depict mummification as a ghoulish act, but its actual purpose was supposed to be reassuring. It marked, in a very physical way, the transition between life and death, a symbol that dying maybe wasn't so bad after all, that Anubis himself would protect you. In ancient Egypt, a human being wasn't just a body and a soul, but a composite being of multiple aspects. These include the Ba and the Ka, which we discussed, and the physical body, the Kat. The Kat is the aspect of the individual that mummification seeks to protect, because unlike other religions of the era, you were not done with your body once you left it. How you left your body behind would determine your prosperity in the underworld. It's why they had a whole ceremony for opening your mouth and filled your tomb with rites to protect you on your journey, even writing your name everywhere so you would not forget it. These practices may seem strange to us now, but some parts are all too familiar to those who have ever lost a loved one, namely the significant cost. 
Embalmers would price their services on three levels, and the level of care they gave to a corpse was proportional to their fee. Anubis may guide all souls to the other side, but that doesn't mean there won't always be people trying to profit off of grief. And those are scavengers of a different sort. A lone figure stood at the edge of a flowing river. He did not know how he had gotten here or where he was going. He knew his name and he knew that he was waiting. This is all he needed to know. Sure enough, a boat floated up through the mist. The boatman stopped before him, sizing him up and down with a burning gaze. This, the man knew, was Charon. What's that? Oh, right. You're looking for the fairy toll. Just give me a moment. The man fumbled in his robes, but found only empty pockets. A worried look crossed his face, but then his eyes brightened with an idea. He reached into his mouth and pulled out a single iron penny, which he dutifully gave to the ferryman. That's it? I can board? Wonderful. I must say, I thought I'd feel less prepared. But something tells me everything turned out all right. I'm ready to go. The man, whose name was Atikos, stepped out onto the boat. He smiled to himself and said a prayer for Nebtu, his Egyptian friend. If he was able to pay Charon's toll, that meant that she had been able to get his body back home to Greece. Sometimes all justice required was trust in the right people. Hades, here I come. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. Join me in a week as we continue our tour of the underworlds. If you thought ancient Egypt had a complex idea of the soul, just wait until you hear about the Norse afterlife. Even gods were powerless against Hel, queen of the dead. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with another epic story. Mythology is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Mythology was written by Robert Teamstra, with writing assistance by Andrew Kelleher, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Adriana Gomez. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Joe Hernandez, Kai Jordan, Cameron Nikod, and Rebecca Thomas. I'm Vanessa Richardson. The only way to get to heaven was to allow him sexual activity with me. These are not the people that you would normally associate with a cult. Do you think I need to be worried for my safety? I definitely think you should be prudent. This is Revelations, a Spotify original from Parcast, premiering Sunday, October 3rd.